Hello, folks. DJ Paskey here. Welcome to another Perfect Club episode here on the Trap Draw podcast. We are going to get into it in just a second. But before we do, I want to give a shout out to our longtime partners at Precision Pro Golf, who have dropped some awesome new gear for the golf course. Introducing the No Laying Up Duo Golf Speaker, which delivers high quality audio, audible GPS distances, a built in magnet, and a carabiner clip for walkers. I think I mentioned this on the podcast a couple weeks ago, but I keep mine just magnetically clipped right to my refrigerator. It's awesome. I use it around the house. I can grab it if I'm going to play golf. Uh, just a, a great product. Absolutely love the Duo Golf Speaker. Of course, it has the iconic Wayward Golfer logo on the grill. Is the perfect golf gift for a golfer in your life this holiday season or or check out the NX10 Rangefinder. Style meets performance with the NX10 offering a variety of interchangeable NLU designs an unbeatable accuracy and yes you can even protect your rangefinder in style with the exclusive no laying up rangefinder case good way to know you know if it's yours if you leave it behind in a cart it's just a good little identifying mark there precision pro golf is all about you the golfer they stand behind their products like no one else offering free batteries for the life of your product and a 90-day money-back guarantee here is the best part use code no laying up to get $20 off your NX10 at precisionprogolf.com slash NLU. Again, that is precisionprogolf.com slash NLU. Use code NOLANGUP for $20 off your NX10 rangefinder. Now let's get on to the perfect club. Mr. Jeezy, please take us away. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Trap Draw, and happy Thanksgiving if you are uh, enjoying some uh, Thanksgiving gatherings uh, this week. We are talking today about The Last Waltz, uh, the 1976 seminal film uh, documenting the band's last performance. Uh, to my left, uh, before I, you know, I kick around like uh, Van Morrison in a purple suit, I'm going to introduce you to Mr. DJ Pies here. Mr. Pie, how are you today? I'm doing great, guys. I'd just like to say that before we start here, it's one of the pleasures of my life to be on the stage with with you people. This is this is as good as it gets. Playing the the Joni Mitchell role, just stealing the show right and left. Uh, Miss Casey Landman, Casey, how are you today? Hello, good morning. I'm I'm great. I'm very excited to talk about this uh, this seminal piece of film that I just saw for the first time this week. So let's go. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, DJ, you and I have been kicking around this idea for a couple of years. Uh, you know, the the last waltz being sort of a uh, an important, um, I think, documentary in your Thanksgiving weekly rituals. How did you guys, How did you sort of come across this film? You know, it's always talked about on on Twitter uh, as sort of being like a a Thanksgiving film. What what is the role does the last waltz play in your life? Yeah, it's uh it's a big one. I uh I've probably seen it 10 or 15 times at this point. Uh I don't really remember the first time I saw it. I'm sure I was I was younger and you know, high school or something and just getting into the band and figuring out, you know, hey, there's this this movie. Have you ever seen it? It was probably the same time I watched, you know, 
Tommy and the song remains the same and all, all those kind of like classic rock uh, films, very important films. And uh, as far as like Thanksgiving stuff, I mean, I, I think our, uh, you know, mutual Twitter friend, Stephen Hyden plays a big role in, you know, the same way people ride really hard for Die Hard as a Christmas movie. Uh, I think Stephen has played that role about the last waltz and making it a Thanksgiving film. And for a long time, you know, Justine and I were living in various places around Florida and we never really had too many good like holiday traditions. We were always kind of moving around and our, you know, our place wasn't really big enough to host anybody for Thanksgiving or we were on the road at somebody else's house for Thanksgiving or whatever. And uh, a couple years ago, I, I was probably four or five years ago now, uh, we're sitting in like our, our tiny place in Neptune Beach and, you know, it's like 10 o'clock on Thanksgiving night and I'm sitting there with my brother-in-law, Preston, and everybody else has gone to bed and we have a lot of like musical uh overlapping tastes not a ton of other you know massive things in common but you know we're kind of sitting there and it's a true like what do you want to do i don't know what do you want to do kind of situation and i think i'd probably seen one of steven's either columns or tweets or whatever about thanksgiving and the the band and the last waltz i was like well i mean it's thanksgiving like we could watch the last waltz and uh it was just this like really fun night where he and i got to spend some good time together and joke about all the you know robbie robertson solos and van morrison's lace up fly and the first time garth comes on with the saxophone and just turned into this really fun night so the uh the next year when thanksgiving came along and we're sitting on the same couch at the same time it was like well i mean we should probably watch the last waltz again and it, it was just kind of one of the first uh really good holiday like adult holiday traditions that i felt like we could kind of uh pull out of thin air for our our family and now that we've moved to Milwaukee and we have a little more space to host people, you know, last year was the first time having a good like 10 or 12 people in the room and my brothers and parents and everybody kind of, you know, laughing about all these little micro moments in the last waltz. And uh, now it's become something I really, really look forward to. And it's one of those films, too. I mean, we're going to get into it, but it, it's just the perfect piece of like film that you can dissect every single moment and every expression on everybody's face and you can read what that actually meant and that person hated this person and here's how they got that shot and this guy didn't want to be on stage and it just it just gets more and more interesting uh the more times you watch it so i i'm i'm so pumped to uh to have two new people to talk about it with kev had you had you seen it before what's your background with it you know i i feel like i've certainly seen clips of it i was kind of very aware of the band. The band seemed like the band that was always just on in the background of like from 1979 when I was like two years old to like, you know, 1990, like this, uh, you know, I knew the the words to the wait before I knew who Levon Helm was. And so I, my parents weren't like huge music people, uh, but it was just kind of one of those things. It was like always around. And then when I got older uh, and I became friends with sort of one of my magazine writing heroes, Charlie Pierce. He's like one of the biggest fans of the band alive that, that exists. And so he was always talking about, you know, whether the, the night we drove old Dixie down was like problematic or whether it was totally fine or whether, you know, artists can sort of embody storytelling. And, and I, it was the first time I really sort of was like, ah, I need to pay attention to this because this is what like cool people are into. And, uh, and so I had seen like certainly like long performances of it probably on YouTube, but I don't know that I'd ever sat down. I know this is like heresy to say, but like from beginning to end and watched the whole thing and really like digested it and thought about it. And then since we sort of talked about this, I've been like reading all kinds of stuff ever since. So I, I think 
you know, we always talk about in these podcasts, like we're not experts on any of this stuff. Like our friends, you know, Stephen Hyden or, you know, uh, one of the music writer that I really admire, Amanda, Amanda Petrusic, uh, has written some really smart and interesting stuff about this. And I'll like drop links, you know, into the, the, you know, Twitter stuff about this when we send it out. You can f- do more reading. But this is really kind of about like our experiences and our feelings about watching this documentary. Casey, you and I went to uh, a seminal American artist, uh, Bruce Springsteen, earlier this year. Uh, I always love talking about music with you uh, just because you are so smart. And so I, when I asked you about this, you were like, well, that's right. But I've, I have no like grasp of this movie at all. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the sort of sheer panic that you thought when I was like, oh, come be an expert on The Last Waltz. I, I know. I was kind of like, uh, <laughs> I've definitely never seen it. And uh, like it was kind of the thing where growing up, like my family was way big into music, like super music people. But it was like peripheral of the band like my mom listened to like james taylor and crosby sills nash and young and like a lot of carol king and like stuff like that carly simon like kind of like that simon and garfunkel kind of like you know on the peripherals of it my dad was strictly like a like a funk like chicago guy if we're gonna do like 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 horn heavy stuff or like very current music so kevin like you 77 to you know 1990 my my growing up years like i listened to a lot of like you know, what was coming out of England at the time, because that's what my dad listened to, or like a lot of synth pop or a lot of like, like rock rock. Like, um, like I remember learning to play like Van Halen jump, like on the keyboard, like before I even, you know, learned anything else, but, or like I cried because they wouldn't take me to see Adam Ant. Right. So it's like, like, these are like, you know, things that a normal six-year-old's probably not, not doing, but you know, the band was like, no idea. Like I, I knew the song, the weight, I think, because like so many other people had covered it. And like, I just kept laughing at like in 2007, that SNL sketch <laughs> where it's like the four guys sitting around the bar telling like terrible stories of like, and then they just all like break into like, Take a load Take a load off, off. like that is like, that's what I think about when I think about the weight. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like, like when I, when I came back uh, to Philadelphia, like 15 years ago, I, I was working at, um, you know, volunteering at a AAA alternative radio station, WXPN here. And like, it was when the whole steady were really breaking free, like my morning jacket and drive by truckers, Isabel, all that. And it's like all of those bands, like love the band. And, uh, but I still like, wasn't compelled to like go back and listen to the band or anything like that. So this was, uh, I knew like three songs in this movie that were band songs. Uh, but so it was kind of fun to just watch it as like a moment in time piece, like a, like, a, here's a slice of, you know, rock and roll at this exact moment in time. And like watching it like that is kind of how I took to it, because you're not going to convert me to like the biggest band fan ever, like from watching this we'll movie. We'll so. see. We'll see. Let's, we, you know, we, we got an hour here. Yeah. Uh, if you are for some reason listening to this podcast and you stumbled because uh, you're a big fan of the trap draw in LU, but you really don't care about the band and you're sort of unfamiliar with what we're talking about here. Uh, the Last Waltz is sort of is a concert film uh, about the seminal uh, band, the band. Uh, and it was filmed on Thanksgiving Day, uh, November 25th in 1976, and is directed by one Martin Scorsese. Uh, it was uh, performed at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. TikTok sort of dub- star, Martin, Martin Scorsese. TikTok star. <laughs> yeah. 
big big Birdman fan. Uh, Martin exactly. Scorsese. It was sort of dubbed as the band's last uh, concert performance, a farewell tour. They'd been on the road for I think 14, 15 years at that point, uh, and the the sort of lead songwriter Robbie Robertson basically kind of bullied the other members into leaving the road. <laughs> he basically said that, you know, he wanted the the band to kind of become more like the Beatles and sort of stop touring and, and just make studio albums that the, the, we- the weariness of the road was starting to kind of wear on the band. Amanda Patricia, uh, I mentioned before, uh, excellent New Yorker rock critic, music critic, as I wrote that it, it's a film that captures the band on the edge of like being spiritually and physically broken. And the, you can sort of sense the weariness in their, their faces. And as they sort of gathered together to, to film this last concert, you know, Robbie kind of put out, called in all favors that he could calling all accounts and, and brought together some of the, the most famous people in music uh, to sort of have kind of a, a send off tribute, including, you know, Bob Dylan, Neil Diamond, Derek Clapton, Van Morrison, Joni Mitchell. Uh, you know, you see even like Ringo Starr in here, you know, Ronnie Wood, Muddy Waters, just a, a whole like all-star collection of uh, people who were making amazing music uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and, and Scorsese, who had just sort of come off directing Mean Streets, you know, got sort of pitched by this by Robbie Robertson and was like, well, maybe we'll make a concert film, you know, maybe, you know, do this. And then it became something much much more powerful, much more moving uh, over the next two years uh, and and certainly formed a lifelong relationship with Robbie Robertson, who then, you know, helped with the music in uh, Raging Bull and and all the way up through a lot of Scorsese's films, all the way through The Irishman uh, until Robbie and Robertson Killers died. Killers of the Flower Moon. And Killers yeah, of the Flower Moon, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so certainly, like, I think it's an important piece of culture, whether you are into the band uh, or not. Uh, Deej, what do you hear when you hear the band? Uh, you know, it's... It's an interesting kind of, I think, thought exercise because I don't think they sound like too many other things. Um, Rolling Stone, in a very famous interview, uh, referred to them as White Soul. Al, Al Cooper wrote this. I hear the Beach Boys, the Coasters, Hank Williams, the Association, the Swan Silvertones, as well as obviously Dylan and the Beatles. Uh, what a bunch of varied influences. I love all music created by Above the People and a montage of these forms it just boggles the mind. It's also something else. It's that good old intangible, can't put your finger on it, white soul. Uh, does white soul still exist? <laughs> that, that's a great question. Well, I was thinking about this a lot because I kept pausing it the first time I watched this last week because I kept like seeing parts. I would stop it. I'd yell at John, P- press pause, <laughs> my husband. I'm like, this kind of like this song has like a very My Morning Jacket mm. feel or like uh, yesterday in my head. I was like, man, Nathaniel Rateliff yes. is kind of like, I get very the same vibes I, there. So it's like, I, I don't know if we're allowed to call it White mm-hmm. Soul anymore. That's, like yeah. that might be not what I we call like, it. I feel like but, John Mayer uh, might want to talk to you about but, White Soul for a while. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Case, I love Nathaniel Rateliff. Uh, and after like watching this film, I was like, man, Nathaniel Rateliff is ripping off Levon, Levon Hill pretty hard. Like this is truly like, uh, it's like an Oasis Beatles situation. That's what I was going to say is that it feels like there's so many, uh, you don't want to say like derivative stuff, but there's so many things from the same kind of uh, ethos or trying to tap into that same frequency that just kind of feels like a a bit of a facsimile or knockoff of, of the band. There's, there's a great line. I went back and watched the, uh, if you ever watched any of the classic albums, 
uh, documentaries, like they're some of the best things ever made. There's the one on Asia, the Celia Dan one is like all time, but I, I watched the one about the band last night and there's a line from Grill Marcus in there that says, uh, the band feels like a passport back to America for people who felt like they'd been estranged from their own country. Which is like, wow, that's pretty much the fucking best sentence I've ever heard uh, written. And then I think from there you can even unpack like what does that mean for a bunch of Canadian dudes to to really be the thing that like reflects back all this Southern uh, culture back to Americans. So I, I think there's there's something that it, it taps into and and you know people much smarter than all of us have written a great length about, you know, the blending of country and bluegrass and the blues. And you see all of that on display during the last waltz, but kind of throwing all that into the blender and coming up with this thing that maybe sounds like it's from like hillbillies in the mountains. And maybe it's from Hollywood and maybe it's from Woodstock and maybe it's from Omaha is kind of this like, like that. I mean, what better American music can you, you come up with, which again is, is just funny that, almost none of them are from America. <laughs> it's just, it's the best, man. It's like this uh, really fun contradiction that somehow also like encapsulates everything. I just, I love it. Was Levon Helm a rock star? Like it sort of pivots a little bit of what you're talking about. He's like, it's this amalgam of music. And I was thinking about this a lot uh, as I was watching the film, like certainly like there's a lot of people, it shows you how drastically different culture was in the seventies from what it is now. Like if you had a dude who looked like, Van Morrison or Levon Helm or Neil Diamond or whatever, they could not be the biggest face in music. I really am convinced of that. It's just too much kind of image driven. You almost have to like look a certain way before then you are meet the bar of like, are you talented enough? I was Levon Helm a rock star. Like I, I think, I mean, he looks like he could be like my uncle. Uh, in fact, he looks a lot like some of my uncles <laughs> and yet he just absolutely whips uh, on, you know, he has that, awesome soulful voice i'm just curious to get your guys thoughts there's another again I, I keep shouting this out but the uh the classic albums documentary that talks about like how a lot of these songs were written and stuff you see like robbie robertson who wrote a lot of the band's songs i think like probably most of their songs uh talking about writing the night they drove old dixie down and he's playing it at the piano and he's talking about how like he had just had a, a newborn child and so that was the reason like when he originally wrote it it was like very soft and very subdued and he's playing it at the piano and you're just like oh god like next please like this is no thanks no thanks no thanks running that through the filter of levon helm screaming at the top of his lungs and somehow encapsulating like 300 years of american history at the at the top of his lungs is just like man that that is a rock star that can do that just barely alive I made tenth Richmond it fell It's a time I remember But then also, the, I'm with you that like you hear him talk and you, you see him with his you know trucker hat on and his vest on and all of it just screams like, man, I kind of just want to make enough money to go sit on my farm and uh, you know maybe nobody will bother me again, right? So it's funny to juxtapose that with kind of his, um, you, you know, you mentioned Robertson kind of bullying the rest of the band into into coming off the road. I think 
Levon in his in his biography and interviews, you know, ensuing after uh, after the last waltz was probably the most vocal person saying like, "No, this is kind of bullshit. Like, I'm not ready to be done. I don't want to keep stopping. I'm not in it for I, my health." As I ain't as, in this for my health, as, as the famous <laughs> line says. One of the best rock and roll quotes of all time, I think. Uh, and that's right. You, I don't know, man. You start adding up some of that stuff, and I think you you got to put the rock star the rock star stamp on him. Case was was Levon Helm even the lead singer of the band? I mean, you know, you and I are Drive by Truckers fans, and they always kind of took their, I think, model in some ways after the band, uh, and and they were kind of at their best when Mike Cooley and Patterson Hood and Jason Isbell were all kind of dueling with each other as lead singers. What what do you think? Yeah, I well, because I saw that you put a note like, you know, oh, the lead singer, and like immediately just from watching it, I'm like, I don't get from watching this and not really knowing any band stuff from watching the last waltz i'm like i don't think he's the lead singer like they seem to share responsibilities which led me down a rabbit hole of course of like going into the discography and just like looking because on it, it shows like who's the lead singer and everything and it was like very much like evenly distributed uh with with stuff and i just think that levon sang the three big songs right so it's i think he kind of got that label uh but even like the eagles right like i know you know, they Don Henley, yes, lead singer, but also Glenn Fry and Joe Walsh did stuff too. So I think that I, I see the band like quite literally as like uh, the band. It's not Levon Helm and the band. It's not, you know, Robbie Robertson and the band. It's truly a collaborative band, right? With everybody kind of uh, making these songs. Up, I think so. that's coming back to the film a little bit. What what it does such a good job of is kind of these little vignettes about about each person and and really tapping into, okay, here's what... Here's what Garth brings to the band. Here's what, uh, you know, obviously Robbie brings to the band. Here's what Levon brings to the band. Maybe not uh, Richard Manuel quite as much. He just ends up looking like a serial killer. But, you know, I, I know that was one of the things that that the rest of the band was probably a little pissed about, or at least Levon was like, it kind of just ends up feeling like the Robbie, the Robbie show. But there are little glimpses of the rest of the band, probably not as much as there should be, Casey, in order to kind of justify your your point, which I... I totally agree with is like that. That's what makes him so great is it is truly like five people who are all like, if not equally sharing the load, it's not like a, you know, it's, it's not a Paul McCartney, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of the the heavy lifting here as, as things wind down kind of situation. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's where I did a lot of reading after watching it. And I, I mean, we'll probably get to this later, but I kind of like Robbie's kind of, <laughs> I'm not not yeah, in on Robbie. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's fascinating to see like the the debate over the years. I mean, p- true fans of the band, I think, chose like Levon in the sort of split between me and Robbie. But um, you know, certainly like Robbie is this huge reason that like this film even exists and that the band you know was able to hang hold it together for as long as it was. Uh, let's kind of start, I guess, a little bit with some of the the guest performances because uh you know there it's really remarkable i i know that um you know we have some thoughts on like whether this kind of thing could happen today but you know you have a, a such varied i mean they wanted to have the varied influences of like what music was in, in this cultural moment and so you know you have like neil young strolling onto stage uh very early in the show uh and and with just a rip-roaring rendition of helpless uh, you have, you know, Dr. John sort of representing New Orleans jazz. You have 
you know, it's just the complete clown and Neil Diamond's uh, strutting onto the stage. And apparently, like, after he performed, like, <laughs> walked off stage and was like, yeah, try to beat that. And Levon was like, what, like, like going to sleep out there? Like, no, I mean, Levon no, had no, no, no. He said it to fucking Bob Dylan. Oh, dude, he that's off, right. He, Bob Dylan, yeah. he said it to Bob Dylan. He said, good luck following that, yeah. which is by far the highlight of, of any rewatch is thinking about that in the back of your mind as, you know, not KVV said in, in our agenda here that uh, Neil, Neil Diamond looks like a gym teacher, which is uh, – no offense to any gym teachers out there, but just a really fucking funny line. But that's all I could think of now watching it is, you know, as every time he moves his shoulders, every time he's kind of dancing is just that guy walked off the stage and told Bob Dylan, like, go follow that. That's the kind of confidence we're dealing with here. Um, okay, since you didn't really know who was going to appear on stage uh, as before they came on, what did you think when... Uh, say like you know uh, Neil Diamond or excuse me when Neil Young strolls out looking coked out of his mind. I don't know. I mean, like I I didn't really think anything was weird about it. Again, because of like his whole Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, same kind of era. Um, you know, as a Pearl Jam fan, I'm default a Neil Young fan for Godfather of Grunge, right? Like, you know, I was like, oh, that's that's Neil in the '70s. Like, I was very. It didn't like shock me or out or anything, but uh, you know. It, it's funny. Um, I went to see Neil Young a couple of years ago because I felt like this was something I should do before people die. This is like right after Petty dies. So I'm like, I probably it's should do That's why I wanted to go see Springsteen and, uh, with you, basically. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, better do this now, just in case. Oh, but like, I think I would have, you know, I would have preferred seeing Neil in the 70s rather than Neil in the 20, 2010s, right? So it was, it was, it was fun to see him come out and just look crazy and do Neil things, you know? But, freaking harmonica and everything love it what uh let me ask you as this as kind of first time ish viewers i'm sure you've seen a lot of concert films a lot of document band documentaries what what's the scorsese of it all for you what was uh what makes this one different kev i was thinking about this siege i think that it's the seamlessly blending of like the concert performances with the backstory of the the band you sort of get little like crumbs along the way of like, even if you came into this, not really knowing who the band was, you kind of have a little bit of like, Oh, how they sort of, you know, have, have been living on the road all this time. And it's not, it's not chrono chronological. It's sort of like they, they fit together in various pieces and they're kind of joking about like, Oh, you know, women are, are the reason we stayed on the road whatever. And Richard Manuel saying that. And then Levon basically being like, yeah, I thought we weren't supposed to talk about that. Like you could sense the tension sort of start to, you know, in between them. And then you just sort of see like these rip roaring performances where they they become sort of greater than the individuals. I, I love, I guess, the way that Scorsese kind of builds the love between them. I mean, the, one of my favorite moments in the whole thing is Robbie and, and Levon, who clearly hate each other, probably at this point, but certainly like later in life, are talking and doing an interview with Scorsese. And Robbie's, you know, going on like waxing philosophical and like trying to like he's trying to light a cigarette and Levon like very intimately like leans over and lights a cigarette for him. And I was just thinking like, wow, like the shared kind of, you know, history between these two guys, they're the, I think the most important people obviously in the band that made it happen. And yet they, they can't stand each other at this point and for the rest of their lives. And yet like that kind of effort of friendship, I'm sure they thought nothing of it, but to me, like it just takes on such greater, sort of symbolism in the like, all right, I'll reach across this divide like one more fucking time. 
light your cigarette and talk about your shit instead of going and playing the rock and roll, man. <laughs> what do you think? Did you, you're, you're sort of, you know, certainly someone who's thought about film a lot more than case and I have, what, what to you makes it a Scorsese film? Uh, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, the, you know, obviously opening, <laughs> opening with a billiards table. I think that's a, you know, <laughs> kind, of, kind of a, Hey, I, I see where we're going here, but I, I think there's a lot. I think like the, all the things kind of being out of order is, is fun, right? It's not just a kind of sequential, you know, chronological concert. First they played this song, then they played this song. He starts at the end, right? With with Don't Do It, which is I think a conscious choice for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's you know, it's the end of the band is kind of the point of the whole film. But also I think you just start by seeing those guys as weary and ragged and you know hangovers are already encroaching. It's 2 30 in the morning when they're playing Don't Do It also. Uh, and so just starting there of just like, all right, here is, we're, we're truly starting at the end is a really fun choice. I, I fucking love, I laughed so hard this last, uh, this last time through just all the, all the little moments where Scorsese like leaves himself in staring at the camera before yes. he's, he's like, okay, yes. rolling. Okay. 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 Let's go. And then they're walking down the hallway. Just, I think is a little nod to him being like. <laughs> all this is bullshit, man. Like this is clearly a movie. This is, this is like their polished, uh, version of what they want you to think about them. I'm not pretending like any of this is, is gospel. Like there's a lot of cameras around. There's a lot of crew around. This is them saying what they want you to think. And I think juxtaposing that those interview bites that are like highly stylized and very, uh, you know, kind of conscious with the, concert footage which is like no no no. here's what it actually looks like when they're not thinking and when they're not you know this is this is what their natural state looks like over here is is just really really fun to me to me i was like i mean spinal tap right, right. this is spinal yeah. tap was mm -hmm. like with Mar marty de Bergi, right? Well, this like, inspired spinal tap i don't know if you know that like his, exactly. his dumbass exactly. his no, I know, questions I know. Like, and and just like the whole like you know making it seem like a much more bigger thing like every time they're just interviewing and like robbie's just going off on like whatever freaking spiritual tangent of trying to wax poetic and it's just kind of like dude you're playing music it's it's rock and roll <laughs> like well, Ro robbie's like, original like on. desire for the film was to be shot in like black and white and he like sent the <laughs> other band members like a french like <laughs> film from 1930 uh that was like gonna be the inspiration for it like i would just would love to see levon's face when uh robbie was trying to tell him like oh watch uh you know this this film from 1930 that explains uh you know what i want this film to be yeah. so i think the other thing i really liked this past time just kind of thinking through it was you know so obviously there's there's a couple performances uh evangeline and the weight that are shot on a sound stage that are a couple days after the last waltz that are you know totally totally different like everything else is just live raucous you know, full house concert venue footage. And then there's a couple songs that are just sprinkled in that are like, no, 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 we're going to make this look and sound as good as we possibly can. Uh, and we're going to shoot them like a, a capital M movie, which I think is kind of a, you know, either subtle or not so subtle nod to almost like what the band was, was trying to head towards. Right. Which is like, we are going to come off the road. We're going to go into the studio. We're going to only work on making the most like polished, high-end uh studio stuff possible and like here's what that looks like and every time i watch it 
I mean, the, the performance of the weight is beautiful and it's gorgeous and everything sounds perfect. And it's really cool to be able to hear Mavis Staples clapping. So, so crystal clear and the way she says beautiful and all, all, all of those things are, are so great, but I, I almost want to fast forward also. Cause I'm like, just take me back to the fucking winterland, man. Like that's, that's all, that's all I'm here for is I just want to see the live the live version of this and it's uh like seeing those two things kind of fight each other is a really fun choice too well another thing too with like the the decision to like really only show the band like you don't see the audience like ever which is like for a concert film is a little weird you know it's like i think about other kind of like you know i don't know flight 666 iron maiden is a great freaking concert film slash documentary but like they, when they go and play in like Brazil and stuff and you see like the hundreds of thousands of people and it's like that's all part of like the experience of it. And like to me watching this, I'm just like, God almighty, it's like how like they're so obsessed with themselves or Rob, like whoever is pulling the strings. It's just like, no, this is just only about us. And it's not about what we mean to the 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 people the out audience. there. It's like I would have loved to see the footage of like the 5,000 people there that all ate Thanksgiving turkey, dinner right? at that show. <laughs> yeah. They had to secure like 4,000 pounds of turkey to do this. And had like that would have been waiters and tuxedos like serving them uh, dinner, yeah. which is crazy. They had ballroom dancing going on. Like there's like there was so much other stuff going on around this this spectacle of like the last show. And and like reading all that afterwards, I'm like, wait, show me that. That sounds awesome. You know, so but the same thing, I I didn't like the studio stuff. I, I was like that's, and then also didn't they overdub almost everything of the actual everything concert? except Levon, except yeah. Levon, yeah. Like so, so even then I'm like it's it's still just like a you guys trying to to make yourselves look as as great as humanly possible for posterity, right? Which, which I, in a way I'm kind of like oh totally just be yourselves dude (laughs) no of course but i think also from a you know kvv uh lit school looking for metaphors i'm like oh that's as good as it gets man is like yeah yeah we just want to have this concert documentary where we're just rocking all the time but everyone's so coked out that it sounds like absolute shit so we need it we need to overdub all the guitars and all the singing and like it's just a fake version of a real thing that it just like oh god i could just give me that into my veins man i could talk about that all day so maybe this is kind of poisoned a little bit by the fact that I've just come off of watching the Netflix cup where like we gather like all these people and like all these agents have to weigh in and all these PR people have to weigh in. And there's so many like cooks in the kitchen of like, well, you know, he's not going to appear unless this is this and whatever. And there was some of that kind of going on with Bob Dylan's stuff about whether or not he was going to perform at the end. And he had his own, you know, film that he wanted to sort of do. And so he, he was, there was, very much like uncertainty right up to the last minute that Dylan was actually going to go on stage or could they film it? I kind of was of the belief that you couldn't do this today where it just would be this like sprawling for fun. I mean, there to me, there'd be so many people who are like, well, how much am I getting paid? Well, how, what, what billing am I going to get? What's that case? You, you were a little bit disagreeing in our sort of pre-chat of like, could we gather a, a thing like this? I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Like, why am I wrong about this? What, why does the spirit of rock and roll still exist in, in this kind of collaborative thing. I just think of like, I immediately went to all the Bonnaroo super jams, right. That happen late at night at Bonnaroo every year, where it's like a lot of random people who are playing the festival, just get up and play like two hours of like, you know, rock and soul stuff. And then we're just going to do it. Or like, 
you know, like, or uh, at Newport, Newport Folk Fest, every freaking year at Newport is just like, everybody's coming on to everybody else's set. There's usually a bigger thing at one of the nights, like last year was like Paul Simon. They were celebrating Paul Simon. It was like Nathaniel Rateliff. And they just kept having all these different people come out and like celebrating Paul Simon. And then Paul Simon actually came out. And it's, it's, I feel like it's like more of these organic type things that happen at these festivals where it's, it's, it just happens. Like, and then I thought about like on a bigger stage, like the Taylor Hawkins tribute concerts last year, like two giant concerts in, in London and in, in Los Angeles where, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, big name people from like, you know, current rock stuff were coming out and playing. And that seemed to, that was like a big event type thing that it happens, but I don't know. I feel like I was just very much like, I see this happen when I go to some of these, like, I mean, Newport Folk Festival and the band is like, you know, like hand Literally in hand. Literally, right? Joni Mitchell, I, right? I feel like the spirit of that. Joni reappeared yeah. in Newport the, for the first I mean, time the Joni, Joni reappeared last mm-hmm. year. Yep. And then they did, Brandy Carlisle did uh, earlier this year at the Gorge. They had a giant Joni jam, which was just like a whole night of Joni Mitchell with like a bunch of other people who came out and did all this Joni stuff. So I, I do think that it still happens. This is where I started to be like, well, how big was the band actually versus like, like how big, you know what I mean? How big were all these people? And then I think like, well, is it, I know who all these people are doing these things at Newport Folk Fest and stuff like that, because I'm in that realm of that's the kind of music I listen to now, but like Joe Schmo on the street, you know, if I'm like, Oh, you know, Taylor from Dawes came out and did something like, they're not who, what, you know, Mandy Moore's husband. Right. Like, so I, I, I wrestle with like, was the band like a pitchfork, like blog band back then? Like, would they be like the national was 15 years ago? Like, you know, before? Well, I think that's the, I think that's the thing is like, I, I, I am hardly an expert on this either, but it's like, I think that the way music is just fractured and gotten like more and more niches are, you know, kind of have their audience and, and all that. I think that's, that's where this, that's where this, I think like, is is a different place than where we're at now where i think in this film you can see that muddy waters to eric clapton to neil diamond to Joni mitchell is is a much smaller spectrum than if you were in 2023 trying to do something comparable to this where it's like i don't know i guess we get like harry styles and tyler the creator and blink 182 is gonna come by and i don't know here are you trying to are you trying to make a grammy right and that's where i think it just becomes like yeah that's probably like i would watch that that'd be sick but i i don't think that's gonna necessarily work in quite the same way just because like things have just the tentacles have just kind of spiraled so much farther and everyone just seems like the whole spectrum is so much like one end is so much farther you know from from the other which is probably again probably like a a net positive for for music but probably a net negative for uh trying to do something like this yeah i i I felt like if they try to do something like this now it becomes that forced stuff like every year when i watch the grammys and i just have like cringe over cringe about like they're trying to force these moments ever since like the prince like the george harrison tribute like took off and was like amazing they try to just throw all these people together but including when levon died and they had like britney howard and like Jason Isbell and like various people like come on stage and perform the wait, uh, which was good. You know, I, I, I can't remember who all made up the thing, but um, you know, it doesn't quite have the power of obviously the original and stuff, but uh, I, I don't know that we can go through every single uh, performance in this, but I do want to ask you guys like 
if you had to pick like one or two of your favorite moments in this documentary, uh, what would it be? DJ, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. Okay. 15 moments. Got it. Um, <laughs> no, there's a, there's a bunch. I wrote down a million. I'll just okay, very, please. very quickly. I think okay. the, fir- the first time you see Richard Manuel's yellow plaid jacket is a laugh out loud <laughs> moment. I think, uh, Richard Manuel saying stuffing baloney uh, is uh, another one of my my favorite things. Uh, the entire uh, makes no difference performance is just fucking epic. Like the Rick, every time Rick sings, I think is my favorite moment of of the film. We haven't really talked about him enough, but he has just just his like I don't know, such a sweet kind of demeanor where he almost like feels like the. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know how old he is. I don't know how old he is in relation to everybody else. He just feels like a little brother of of the band. You have like Levon and Robbie kind of almost like pulling back and forth for all these big moments. And oh my God, here comes Rick out of nowhere. It's just, it's it's so good. The harmonies in, in that chorus specifically are like as about as good as it gets. In the So you you have a quick pause. Sorry, Robbie Robertson like looks like he just learned how to play the guitar like a week a week before this. Uh, I know he's a very good guitar player. I know he's a he's a great songwriter, but he's just like strangling this thing to death and just looks coked out and looks like he is just hammering. Like those are those are his solos on like every song, and it's it's. I feel like inviting Eric Clapton up for like a dueling solo might have been one of the biggest like <laughs> own goals in the history of music. But you have him just like wrestling with this Stratocaster. And then here comes Garth Hudson, like literally pans across the camera, steps into frame and just plays like the most effortless saxophone solo. Uh, always gets a huge laugh from from my whole family. I think that uh, th- that's one of my favorite moments. I think I'll say I'll, I'll I'll pause my list here and let somebody else jump in. But number one moment for me, I think, is you know, th- there's a town in North Ontario. As soon as you hear, as soon as you hear that from Neil, I mean, that's that's the peak. That's when you start just yeah. floating to the ceiling. There is a town in North Ontario. Case, what's uh, what's your? I uh, I mean, I just I loved all the ridiculous outfits. They're just great. It's just I wanted to power rank all the collars. I didn't get around to this, but like the (laughs) incredible, incredible (laughs) collar energy of every person in this uh, thing who's not wearing a t-shirt is is insane. I Bob Bob Dylan looks like I don't know what school play it would be, but he looks like a kid wearing a costume for a school play for some reason to me. That like that white hat. The is beard like, looks fake. Is, like the whole the whole thing is the, the ringlets. So like, um, but I actually like uh, watching it again. Like um, when they're talking to Levon uh, about bluegrass or country music, you know, and like immediately my head went to what does CBGB stand for? CBGB is the bar in New York, the punk bar. 
was country bluegrass blues. That's what the CBGB stands for. And like, just talking about Memphis and like, I'm a a massive Elvis fan, right? So, and I, I've gone to Graceland in Memphis a a bunch of times and visited some, visited Stacks. Like, I love that old, like when the soul and the rockabilly and the country and everything started to come together and, and form like that kind of Carl Perkins and Elvis and all that was like, I, I just I think I rewound that like three times to listen to Levon talk have, about it. Most of that part. quote here, which I thought it stuck out to me too, and I'll do my best Levon it. Bluegrass or country music it comes down to that area and mixes with the rhythm. And if it dances, and then you got a combination of all those different kinds of music. And Scorsese's like, Oh, what does I call it that? And then I was like, Isn't it obvious, man? Rock and roll. Like it's such a like, oh I could have kudos to Marty for like leaving in his like Oh, wasn't it obvious? Like, you know, come on, like, way, way to get completely owned by your main subject of your film here. Isn't it obvious, man? <laughs> uh, yeah, great moment there. Any others case yeah. that uh, stick out? I loved it. No, I mean, Joni, Joni's like a weird one. Like, I'm not a massive Joni Mitchell fan. Until like, you I watch just, this. I, and then you're just like, oh my God, I can't. Well, like, and then I'm away. just kind of like fascinated yeah. by her whole like aura. Totally. <laughs> like, but like I still like can't go and just put on like blue and like listen to it or anything. Like I just it just doesn't jive with me. But I like I was like fascinated watching. I'm her totally in the same boat. On stage, totally in the same boat. Yeah. <laughs> Kev, what's uh, else on your list? Enchanted. Uh, you mentioned the the one with Mavis, you know, whispering beautiful at the end of the wait. I just love that moment. I I love Mavis Staples so much. Um, I love the whole story of of Robbie and Rick and Richard telling like stealing lunch meat and talk about how they would you know just fill their their yeah. big Canadian coats with lunch meat and then one of them would go up and buy, just a, pay for the buy a roll of bread and that was how they sort of uh, survived on the road. I think like the whole thing with Garth talking about Robbie telling the story of Garth had to, to justify to his parents that he was like giving music lessons to the band uh, and <laughs> it was ten bucks a pop you know whatever it was was awesome. There's a moment, a moment on my list of just the first time you hear Garth talk because you've just seen him just wailing away on these like on the organs and doing all of these like unbelievable music virtuoso things. And you're like, wow, that guy is like what an absolute savant. And then the first time you hear him talk, he's like, well, it's kind of like fixing a screen door and I just <laughs> want to be out there chopping wood. And it's like, holy shit, that is not not what I saw coming there. It's great. I. I love stories about how bands came to be, right? Because very rarely is it like, you know, just all buddies, right? Like you have to fill in pieces of a band. It's like usually like two guys who are friends and then they are like, all right, well, I know this other guy who plays in this other band. We'll sort of piece them together. And then like, well, who the fuck are we going to get to play keyboard? I don't know. There's this like eighth grade genius down the street who <laughs> answered our ad. Like, and I just, I think that's what such makes it a, a fascinating kind of amalgamation of how a band either you know becomes great and is is it just all different kinds of influences or artists from different backgrounds i mean it's just never like put together a band like purposefully in some ways it has to like a great band has to sort of form almost by accident and i think that's a great kind of example of that i think that uh the other one i had garth related was that that backlit shot of him during stage fright when you can see him like at the beginning of stage fright, when he like he's like kind of lingering and it's from behind, and you can see his hair just kind of like silhouetted against these lights is where it becomes like, oh my god, dude, this is they're not just like scattering a bunch of 
GoPros around here and like filming this band. Like this is some fucking <laughs> professionals. Some into this. Yeah. yeah. Some professionals <laughs> working, working on this thing. My final one just would be Muddy Waters, just in general. I mean, Muddy Waters is absolutely like if you honestly, if you're for some reason, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never heard Manish Boy at like a really high volume in your car, like put that on and just absolutely be like taken to church because that is among the greatest performances in the history of music. Not necessarily like this live version, which also absolutely rips, but uh, it is, I, I just am so in awe of. My buddy Wright Thompson is, you know, is from Clarksdale, Mississippi, where Muddy Waters was from. And so the huge Muddy Waters fan and, and has sort of talked a lot about, you know, just how important he is to that region and stuff. And, and you know, I just love his whole aesthetic. Where he's got this like bald stripe down the, the back <laughs> of his head and he's got this amazing suit on. And like you, you see him like singing Manish Boy and like the look, the smile on Levon's face is like, good God, like how lucky, how blessed am I to be up on stage, like just, you know, playing the drums to this like genius uh, is so cool. Oh, I love it. And he, that's that's kind of one of those, I feel like every time I watch it, which again, it's been a lot now, you get like kind of 15, 30 seconds into Managed Boy and you're like, all right, it's kind of just going to be the same riff over and over maybe this is the one we kind of fast forward and skip and then he just keeps like pushing it harder and harder and higher and higher and it just it keeps building and it, i really i really enjoyed that one my, my last yeah. time through I, i'm really trying hard to to put a governor on myself so i don't talk too much about van morrison and the van yeah. morrison performance where he's got the just like crushed velvet purple like <laughs> like medieval suit on uh casey i know you've you've dealt in a lot of costume work i would i'd like to ask where you think he got, literally got that outfit i don't i mean i think all these guys had this is the back it's seamstress for the band guys just you custom, know that's a custom Elton John sang about it yeah. you know like they <laughs> they have all this stuff custom made you know like even even back in Memphis, they had Lansky suits for all the Memphis dudes. You know, no, nobody bought stock clothes back then. Yeah. You had everything would, was made. Would love for to you. talk to him or or, or the man. seamstress about uh, the decision for the <laughs> lace up fly that he has. His... That's uh, as as someone who has worked in in bottoms and 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 I have had to tech design several lace up flies in my yeah. life for. I... I see you definitely know, like Van random. the Man being someone who's like weight fluctuated uh, periodically, probably depending on like drug oh, use and like time point. on the road. And, <laughs> and so I imagine he, he feels a little bloated. Yeah, he can let yeah. it out. I imagine this suit fit really great <laughs> at some points in his life and like not so great at others, but he just, you know, he owned it one or another. Like with the, and the open, like the low collar shirt. Like you don't see the low collar oh. shirts uh, too often. It's, it's, the, it's just. It's. It's the note I, I wrote down yeah. about Van is if you if you go watch it again, he kind of looks like um the best way I could put it, he looks like a like a drunk dude at karaoke, right? And you're just like you're just in so much disbelief that he even remembers the lyrics to his own song because he yes. just looks like the dude <laughs> that you've seen at karaoke a thousand times that gets up there to sing Born in the USA or whatever and like ah, he's gonna forget the lyrics like halfway yes. through, and he's kind of stumbling around, and he can't really focus on anything. And then all of a sudden, like when they really get into it, he starts doing the high kicks. High and, kicks, yeah. Is when the whole bar all of a sudden like, <laughs> no, no, this guy is awesome. No, check this oh, guy out. You'll never uh, believe this dude is dude caravan. He's killing it. Oh my god, you gotta come down here. Come down here if you're like a few blocks away. It's like it's just one of the best, most like life affirming. Uh, performances ever. I, I love it so much. 
I think I think a couple quick more things. I had the the fretless bass that mm. uh, that Rick plays in those like soundstage like reshoots is so sick. And then there was a couple like two shots. So I, I would assume I have obviously never made a uh, concert documentary, but I assume you have so much footage that the temptation has to kind of be to like fly around to all these different cameras. Right. And you have all these different angles and you can always kind of keep the camera moving around, which I think is why it's so interesting when he really chooses to like linger on one shot. And the two examples that I fucking love that are just like kind of sum up this whole thing for me is there's a shot of Neil Young that's a little like just lingers like a little too long. And you don't really know why. And then you realize that it's because at the end of the shot, he leaves his microphone and jumps across stage to go sing on Rick and Robbie's microphone with them. And it's just like the perfect shot. Then the other one is during the night they drove old Dixie down where there's just this like medium shot of Levon across the stage. Like he, he looks fucking perfect. The whole, like the way he's playing, the way he's singing it all is just like so captivating and they leave it in. And this is the kind of thing like you'd never leave in is like the camera starts to pan away almost like, okay, mm -hmm. I've been lingering here too long. I need to go find someone else. And then it just like goes back. Like it just, it stops panning and it just goes back to Levon, which I think is the perfect example of like, yeah, there's, there's nothing else worth seeing right now, man. This is the only thing that, <laughs> the most that magnetic we need person to show you. Stage. Yeah. And it yeah. just, I love the fact that he left that yeah. in. It, it makes me so happy. I, I, on that same line, like I love that shot during Ophelia from behind Levon where it's just like his almost oh. silhouette and the microphone is there and you see can him, see like, his spitting his spit yeah. or his breath or whatever it is. And it's just like, holy shit. Like this yeah. is fucking uh, this is this is a fucking star right here. This is amazing. So good. Amazing. Case any other Levon shirt was also yeah. Levon shirt was also really yeah. good. So good. In that with it's like the island yeah. lace blue shirt. Which again, yeah. when they go back to the studio stuff, and he's just wearing that like golf shirt. I know. Like, like, what, are we, what are we doing? They're rock stars. Uh, guys, I really liked that they brought Ronnie Hawkins yeah. out and and did you know the old rockabilly stuff from like their original. Like that, you know, that's, that's my jams. That's the stuff I like. Guys, I, I'm going to tell a quick story here. I, when I was like a freshman in high school, I was like into really bad, like country music. And I was, you know, I was coming out of like my, uh, maybe my hair metal phase. And, you know, I, I was, I was listening to like boys to men and like, so, you know, just like a lot of really stuff that I, I wouldn't be like, hold up a sign now and be like, oh, I was so proud of that. Uh, and one of my buddies was like, Hey, I really want you to listen to Van Morrison and, and Moondance and Astro Weeks. And, and I got so deep into Van Morrison that I think it's still like Into the Mystic is still literally my favorite song of all time. Uh, I, I can like hear the, that horn in the beginning that sounds like a foghorn, whatever, and immediately be taken back to being like 15 and driving around Missoula and like just thinking about the weird mysticism of like an Irish, you know, crooner, like Van the Man. Uh, and I was just kind of curious, like if, you, if there's any of these artists that had some sort of lasting impact in your life uh, like that, you know, that that make you still be like, oh, my God, like that person probably still sneaks into my top five. As I'm sitting here wearing my Bob Dylan uh, T-shirt, but th that's <laughs> like that's what it is for me. I love how much he just kind of lingers over the over the entire you know, kind of ethos of the film, right? Before you mm -hmm. actually see him. And mm -hmm. again, it's a choice that like, I don't know if I totally uh, 
agree or um i should say i don't agree like i i it's a weird decision to me to like there's no setup for when bob dylan comes bursting through uh you know bursting onto your your screen the only setup is that weird ass like uncle ewan uh fake lord's prayer uh that <laughs> gets that gets put out there which is one of the weirdest moments ever ever captured on film and there's no like you have all these interviews with these guys talking about everything in their career and all the places they started and there was no no question included about like hey so like what's bob dylan like mm-hmm. you know <laughs> what was it like working with him it just they don't really even acknowledge it it almost just kind of like gets left unsaid and here comes this dude that is kind of linger, at least in my life, like lingers larger than all of these other people kind of combined. And when you see him uh, on stage like that, it just, uh, I don't know that that was a big flood for me was like, okay, that's, you know, when he's playing, like, let me follow you down in this style that I think I like, uh, like I've listened to, you know, all the Dylan records, but I think the first time I'd seen the last waltz, I don't know that I had really, even heard like the crazy coked up electric version of it mm-hmm. that was just like a, oh my god i'm like that's the same guy like holy shit and i come home with you baby can i come home with you but i'll do anything in this god almighty world if you just let me come home with you Okay, so I'm not gonna make you pretend like one of these people has been super influential in your life. But. Like literally, like <laughs> I was like, no, no not so Adam much. Ant, Adam Ant, Adam Ant. <laughs> oh, but like, what is interesting is I, you know, we were talking about like who are like if we were gonna power rank people that that prior to seeing this, I would be like, I like their music versus after watching it, like what performances I liked, and I immediately was like, well, it's Neil Young, it's Neil Diamond, the Jewish Elvis, you know, and it's. And it's, you know, Steven Stills, not in the film, but he was there for the big jam session. And it's like, well, there you go. I love Crosby, Stills, Nash Young. I love, I love Neil I Diamond. I love Neil Diamond. Uh, God, but he's the best. I, ha- I like can't, like Bob Dylan is just like, I cannot. <laughs> can't do it. Like, absolutely cannot. Like, I, like John's like, you want to go see him? I'm like, absolutely. no, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> but like, I love this version of Forever oh, Young uh, in this, in this year, right? And so that was like, power rank number one that dylan performance is great and i shall be released is just like so good but like i literally could not ever just turn on bob dylan and listen to it because i want to just punch my head against the wall <laughs> but you know like, I, I, I like three minute punk songs or two minute <laughs> punk songs you know? like, yeah. yeah but uh yeah that's 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 that but you know i know neil diamond is cheesy oh, and all but he's, he's man, so good the, the the man can write some music. What, I love what it. What a voice, Case. We already kind of touched on some of this here and there, but I, I did ask you guys to rank your three uh, favorite sort of performances in this film, uh, who are not like songs about the the band. Uh, I would say for me, like a Van Clare number one, like just uh, everything from the kicks to this double chin to the sort of receding hairline to just, I mean, just an amazing, amazing guy. He's so great. Turn up your radio. Switch on your electric light. 
and then I think like I, you know, I, the Dylan, uh, you know, the second to last song, the sorry, the Baby Let Me Fall You Down. I just love. I mean, I he, I feel like for me, Forever Young feels like a little bit like he's kind of like ah, I'm kind of just doing this case. I, I I don't know that he quite gets into it uh, quite as much as I want him to. But then I think he's like, fuck it, all right, I'm gonna just absolutely kill it on Let Me Fall You Down. Uh, well, there's that great moment where you can't hear what they're saying but you, so we didn't really talk about this but there's all this contention behind the scenes about like dylan was very down to do the performance but mm-hmm. his management team was very much like do not film this all the way up until like the night of like they're about mm-hmm. to go on stage and they don't know whether they're going to be able to film bob's performance or not which was the only reason that the studio agreed to finance they the, gave the money yeah. right so yeah. the whole thing was like if you don't get dylan like you're you're out all of this money basically so Robbie Robertson at times like just looks like super pale. A lot of that's probably the cocaine as well. But I think some of it's almost like the uneasiness of like, oh my God, I got all these guys into this big giant project. And now Bob is being a prima donna about his, you know, I forget what the hell the movie was that was even going to come out uh, yeah. that he thought it was going to take away from. But so they had to have Bill Graham, the like very famous San Francisco promoter uh go into his dressing room and basically like he was the only guy that could I convince him like even the even the band like could have tried to say hey this is like a big deal uh and bob would just be like yeah nope not into it sorry next uh and bill was able to convince him like okay we're, we're only going to film two songs and so he played more but they only were able to film those two and so anyways all of that is like this precursor to I don't know if the two things are related or not, but when they finish Forever Young, maybe the maybe one of the greatest like uh drunk sing-along songs ever, I think. But uh he kind of turns to Robbie and Levon and like starts talking about like what they're gonna play next. So in my head, I always like to connect the dots that like that was unplanned or they didn't know what they were gonna go into. I'm sure there's facts uh that either prove or deny that, but I refuse to read them. And it it looks like they're just like it kind of looks like to your point, Kev, like Bob's face is almost like, ah, you know what? That was pretty fun. Let's let's turn it up a little bit. Yeah. 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 And that's that's like one of my favorite parts of the film. Sick. Uh and I guess I would put Muddy Waters number three. I mean, as much as I want to put Joni Mitchell like up there, she's awesome. Muddy Waters just does it for me. Like those are my those are my top three. I had Bob, uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell. Uh I, I think are are my three favorite contributors, maybe not three favorite performances. Cause I think I'm with you. I, I would put van is the one that I've gotten the most enjoyment out of, but that Joni Mitchell, uh, there's something very funny to me about again, the choice to, to put things where they are. They put the Joni Mitchell performance right after that, like very dumb, like high school conversation about like women on the road. Right. And it's just these guys being like fucking creeps basically. She's like, oh, that's like why we've stayed out there so much is because, you know, just trying to break even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and then they cut to like just like the coolest woman of all time who's just completely got the entire band like in the palm of her hand. There's all those great shots of of Rick and Robbie just kind of like literally standing in the shadows, just like giggling and smiling as she's playing Coyote, which I, I really love too. Yeah. Case. Yeah. Uh, Bob. Ronnie, Ronnie Hawkins. I love the Ronnie Hawkins. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's Mr. Neil. Mr. Neil. Oh, I didn't know which Mr. Neil you're going with. but Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'll go with Mr. Neil Young. I love them both. All Neils are 
All Neil's like are Walt. great. <laughs> All right, guys, it's, we've come to the academic portion of the this discussion. Uh, the Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, uh, one of the more famous songs uh, of the band's of war, has been a subject of much debate over the years, uh, whether it's fucking genius or whether it's sort of the inspiration for a lot of lost cause bullshit. I'm kind of curious as to your uh, sort of thoughts or exposure. I know like super liberal people who are like, yeah, man, it's just a song. Like artists should be able to embody like things. And I know like liberal people who are like, oh, that song's just terrible. And absolutely like that's one thing I can't get into the band is like it just the idea that these Canadians would sort of cosplay like rebel soldiers and stuff is just bullshit. I think I fall in the very much in the camp of I think this artists should be able to tell stories uh, without having to worry about being on the right side of history. Right. Like nobody thinks that like stand by eminem is actually like autobiographical or like that there's a lot of songs where you don't have to actually like pretend to be the main character uh and isabel's a big um sort of advocate of this kind of i guess approach right like you're just telling stories and you don't have to like the the artist you know johnny cash wasn't actually like murdering people just to watch him die like he was telling like stories about prisoners and disaffected you know forgotten people on the margins of society but because of the civil war and shit like people have really seized on this song as being like i don't know man that song's bullshit and they got the you know the rebel flag up in the background in some of the interviews and stuff like I, you could get real sort of academic and and kind of overly ridiculous about this debate but i am curious as to what your guys's things are when you hear that song do you think like oh man this whips or you're like ah man whatever skip I think I think it's the original uh, retweets do not equal endorsements, you know. <laughs> my, 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 my views do not reflect that of my employer. I think it's very much the former. The interviews in front of the the Confederate flag kind of like creep me out. And do I think that's kind of some of the, like you said, the cosplaying of like, you know, kind of some of the bad parts of the American South? Yes, I do. But like, do I think that song from that perspective is just like, holy shit, I've never heard anything like that. I have never thought about it from that perspective. I've never thought about it like uh, just in that intimate uh, level of detail from from that perspective, I guess is a better way of saying it is where I just like can't take my eyes and ears off of off of that song. I absolutely love every single thing about it. It's it's probably my favorite performance of the night and probably my favorite song of theirs as well. Yeah. I'm much more in the former as well. Like you, you gotta be able to tell all kinds of stories and write all kinds of things and not, you know, not have to worry about what are people 40 years from now going to be using this song for, you know, whatever you can't, you can't really. It is funny to me that like Robbie Robertson basically met Levon's parents and he was like, oh, we don't, we haven't really heard much about the Civil War. Like, you know, and the Robbie's dad was like, oh, well, you know, the South will rise again. And he was like, oh, cool. Like, I'll go to the library. And like, yeah, <laughs> right. we, I'm not really familiar with that uh, thing. And so he like went to the library and was like reading up on the Civil War. I was like, huh, like this sounds like it'd be a, a cool thing to sort of write from that perspective. I do think it's, it's interesting when you listen to this song, you can, you can flip it. You know, the artist is not always like uh, able to. I guess, control what the interpretation of a song is. Right. And so like in one of the things that Robbie is kind of interesting in interviews over the years, people have said, you know, well, what's the inspiration for this song? And he's very kind of cagey about like how he came up with the weight and how some of the stuff that he put into some of the things that he wrote. And I think you can actually 
listen to the night they drove old Dixie down and seeing it as kind of like a sad lament of like, well, you know what? The bells are ringing in like victory. And like this sort of the flipping of the perspective is kind of like this, this soldier is like, ah, oh, man, like we got our asses kicked. Like we, what we a, rocked you know, them. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, like they didn't have to take our, take the best, take the very best. Like, I don't know. I think like, certainly in terms of like what the civil war was fought for, like there's no fucking debate in my mind of like how the right side and the wrong side there. But, you know, you're looking at it like a if your grandfather's grandfather like died over some shit, you would still feel like, man, like I don't I'm not that person, but it's still fucking fucked up my family history in a lot of ways. Like I would like to hear some perspective from what it was like to kind of recover from, you know, a, a thing that this whole region basically got wrecked over. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess I don't I don't know. I, I can see it from both perspectives, like Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a, an essay in the Atlantic about the song. And it was like, you know, you, you can tell me that this song is good, but I reserve the fucking right to be wrong and say, it's not so totally fuck you. <laughs> That's what, I mean, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, right? Like the, all of this is like, this is my perspective, man. If, if somebody wants to come to me and say, actually, I'm offended for this reason or this reason, I'm like, wow, that absolutely for sure like i would love to would love to hear more about that that's yeah. that's i think what makes it such a kind of interesting uh interesting thing to to pick apart and i think to your to your point too it's like you're you're inspired by the things you're inspired by right and if you listen to robbie or any of the rest of the band talk about it like they they talk about that first their first trips to america or mm-hmm. to arkansas and tennessee and alabama and some of these like southern you know states that are just so different from where they grew up and you know who knows how that stuff kind of gets into your brain and affects future influences or makes you hear things in different ways and i mean i think you got to kind of follow that uh follow that inspiration otherwise you're you're probably not going to do anything like all that worthwhile right well i mean it's like it's one of the traps that like a taylor swift is in right it's like everyone assumes that every single song is autobiographical and every single you know song is about this specific boyfriend or whatever and even she at times has been like yo like i'm just maybe what if i'm just like telling a story about you know a friend of mine or like something i imagined like i don't quite get when we cross over i think it's probably when you know celebrities became you know a you know online kind of influencers in some ways that everyone assumed that like every single piece of art had to be like a first person narrative of something and that's certainly not true of like novelists you know they we don't look at tom wolf or you know Cormac mccarthy or whatever and be like oh they've lived this life like they you know no i mean even jimmy buffett was able to like people thought like oh he really was like a drug runner and a pirate and this and this don't well you know like also like a lot of that shit was just made up and imagined man like it's not actually all true i mean look at the fucking guy that they were backing up right i think bob yeah. dylan has a pretty good catalog of like hey maybe all of these aren't about me yeah. right I, I think i think there's probably some inspiration drawn there as well i'm sure yeah. uh all right uh, robbie robertson bad guy good guy Unfairly maligned guy, uh, glue guy, uh, you know, one of rock and roll's greatest villains. What do we think? Uh, instead of having thought about him, Case, for, you know, three days, DJ for 10 years. What's uh, what's your perspective? Again, after watching this and then kind of reading up and like going into it, really only knowing like Levon Helm is the band and like watching this documentary and being like, well, they just keep talking to Robbie all the time. Like what's going on? And then I, I don't know, like the whole 
people didn't want to really get off the road. Robbie made them get off the road. There's a lot of conflicting stuff. And it seems like Robbie just really wanted to run the ship as like Robbie wanted to run the ship. And that's kind of kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think it's one of the great like unanswerable questions of of being in a band, right? Is is like is it the is the overbearing person overbearing or are they kind of the only reason that things actually end up happening? Right. And and that's where I think you watch, you know, we've talked at great length about the get back the, the Beatles, uh, documentary, but you, you sit and watch John in some of those, uh, sessions. It's like, yeah, I don't think, uh, they're going to pull too much out uh, of old John for a new album. I think, yeah, maybe Paul might look a little overbearing, but also he's the only reason that the fucking album exists. And so I think that's that's where a lot of this stuff uh, gets really interesting to me, where it's like, yeah, Robbie Robertson, rest in peace, uh, a guy that uh, I want to have dinner with. Eh, I, I don't know if I'd say that. Am I glad that am I glad he pushed things the way he did so that the last waltz exists? Like, absolutely. Do you think that like uh, Robbie Robertson would have let like um, them bring a bed into the studio like John and Yoko did for? Uh, you know, the, how do you think Levon would have reacted to that? Like, uh, yeah, you know, maybe that, you need it. You need a person to say no. You know, Paul couldn't totally. quite stand up and say no to John. So that you know, I, you know? I think this has been written about a lot too. But uh, I think that's kind of one of the lasting. You know, on, on that note, one of the lasting things I always take away from this doc is when you you read as much you know, about how these guys were not getting along or how Levon wanted this and Robbie wanted this and the other guys are caught in the middle. You know, it's just fun to have both sides of your brain kind of occupied by that on one side and then on the other side, like, okay, now go, like, knowing all that, go watch Levon's performances or go watch Rick's performances or go watch Garth's performances. And that is, is I think, where the magic in a lot of this film lies is, man, there's all this, like, political interpersonal stuff going on and you know you mentioned the the reverse shot during ophelia of levon just absolutely like 15 out of 10 like leaving it all out there it is like that's that's what it's all about it's that's what makes it so so great yeah and you know it's funny like they were both right and wrong right like rick danko and richard manuel both died young and very much like Robert Robinson was saying like, we can't, I can't imagine 20 years on the road. It's going to completely like destroy us. I'm trying to sort of, you know, I've these, this last kind of coda of the film is like the road has taken so many great ones. And he kind of lists off Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and all these people who Otis Redding died because they were on the road, because there's so many things that can happen that your fucking plane can crash. Like this, that was a very real thing in the seventies. You know, there's drugs everywhere. And this in the backstage of this concert, there was an entire room set up just for doing cocaine. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, there was with all, with all the amounts plastic of cocaine. on the wall. Yeah. And I, I noticed class, this in the beginning, like touch. they had to spend an enormous amount of money to digitally erase the cocaine that was like stuck in Neely uh, Young's nose during his performance. Like it it was like the most expensive, like, you know, drug deal ever done because of the amount of money that they, <laughs> they had to use to do that. Uh, so, you know, but also like the band never really, you know, made anything great after this. Like, you know, they, uh, I I love the Atlantic city cover. It's like one of my favorite sort of covers of all time. Uh, but that was sort of, you know, very like not even the original lineup, I think. Um, and so like Robbie was right. Like they needed to sort of figure out a way to survive, but also like those guys are right. And then like the part of the road is what feeds that energy of like creative creativity. And so, 
I don't know. It's a, was a great unanswerable rock and roll question. Yeah. Oh God. I'm well, glad, guys, you guys watched. glad you guys watched. Yeah, thank you for indulging me. Uh, you know, if you're, if, you, if for some reason you listen to this podcast and have not seen this film, put it on at Thanksgiving, play it loud. One of the reasons that people say it's sort of a great Thanksgiving film is part because like at Thanksgiving, you kind of have to get along with everybody in, in the room, everybody you, you love or you hate you, you know, there's this simmering undercurrent of all the things that you disagree with, but ultimately you're sort of a family or a pseudo family. And uh, it's always better when you can sustain that uh, just long enough to, to get to the end of the meal. Uh, and I think that's, that's part of why our friend Stephen Hyden talks about it being a, a great Thanksgiving film. Uh, thank you as always for, for joining us on the, the perfect club and the trap draw. Uh, we'll see you guys uh, soon again. To pl- to play us out, KV KVV is going to do the Lawrence Ferlinghetti uh, loud prayer uh, as well. <laughs> I don't know how I read from the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> in, in the in the Chaucer daily dread. Uh, guys, this was great. Thank you so much for for hopping on. Kev, yeah. thanks for driving the ship. This was uh, this was great. See you guys next time.